0: Where it's quality and not necessarily quantity <laughs> that counts. I'm glad for, for all of you who made it out. I'm especially glad for uh, our board members who are here in solid support of this Consider Lectureship and uh, our special guest, Michael Messenger, this evening. Now, Mark wanted me to introduce the board, but I don't figure I have to introduce the board to the board because most of you know who you are already. But let me just say again, thank you for for taking time to come out here. And thank you, Michael, for coming and sharing the evening with us. Uh, We're looking forward to uh, a challenging and an interesting presentation. For those of you who aren't familiar uh, with Michael, he is the president and head and CEO of World Vision Canada. It's an organization familiar to all of us. It provides relief and development and advocacy work in supporting the world's most vulnerable children. His keen interest is in regions that are considered the most fragile. It's taken him to places such as South Sudan, the Central African Republic and Afghanistan. He's met families, and especially children of families there who live on the very outer margins of society. Those whose just day-to-day existence is fragile, to say the least. He joined World Vision in 1990 and was involved in advocacy work in both Canada and over in Geneva. And after five years, he moved Uh, to attend law school, then practiced law for nine years in Halifax. He was a partner at Cox & Palmer. He's developed a broad litigation practice and has served as chief counsel to a high-profile public inquiry on issues of youth justice. He then returned to World Vision and served as vice president, public affairs, and executive vice president before taking on the role of president in 2015. So it is a a great privilege to have you here with us this evening, Michael, and, and we look forward to not only this time, but I'm also anticipating as our partnership with your organization and our school, we, we hope continues to mature and develop that we will have opportunity to have you back in the future and at a time when when our student population is here and uh, able to take, on, take in um, your message. Before you come ahead, I'm going to ask uh Phil Orozzi to come and open our time in prayer and uh then the evening is yours. Thank
1: you. Delighted to do that. Uh let's pray. Uh Father God, uh we thank you for your presence here tonight. And we acknowledge you as a creator as a healer, as provider, uh, you do all those things for us. And we know that uh, you do things miraculously, but uh, many times you choose to use your people to be provider. And uh, tonight we just uh, pray a thanksgiving and a blessing on World Vision as you use them to do that, and on, and on Michael Messenger as, as, they, uh, as he leads them. Uh, We just uh, pray that you'd guide him, give him great discernment in in the position that he has, and that that, uh, all the things that he does and all the things that he represents uh, would give you glory. And God, we we pray that his message tonight would fall on our hearts, and uh, that our hearts would be softened more, and that uh, we would uh, leave here with uh, an understanding and a greater love for our neighbor and express that in ways maybe new and different than we had before. And uh, finally, Lord, we thank you for this place uh, of Prairie and uh, the platform that it provides to, to hear these wonderful messages. And uh, we just pray these things in your great Savior's name, in our Savior's name. Amen. Thanks.
2: Great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for that prayer, Phil, for the James, for the welcome from Mark as well. It's great to be with you. I kind of feel like we should just kind of gather chairs around and have a have a conversation, but I kind of went to effort and put some slides together, so may as well follow through. But I am really delighted to be here at Prairie. Uh, Mark Maxwell, uh, amazing Christian leader. He has been part of our governance community at World Vision, and then we, as we continue to explore some possible partnerships too, we're excited about that. Uh, but this is my first time here at Three Hills. Now, what you didn't tell me is that I could have saved... Uh, the money that I spent on a rental car, and just put a kite up in the air, and it would have taken me here just fine. Um, but it, I don't know if it's always quite this blustery on the prairies. But it's it's been it's been fun to be here today. Um, when I was asked to come and and do this lecture, I kind of asked my team and Mark, kind of, you know, what's what do you mean a lecture exactly? So because I'm not an academic, um, I'm a, I'm a humanitarian worker, you know, recovering lawyer. But so, so today, maybe what we'll get is a little bit of a kind of a little bit lecture, a little bit sermon, a little bit of storytelling. It reminds me a bit of uh, my team a couple of years ago. They, they said, guess what, Michael, you're going to be part of a symposium in Western Canada. I said, oh, that's great. So where are we going? We're going to Edmonton, Calgary, Vancouver. This is a couple of years ago. You're going to be talking about marginalized people or fragile context. That's great. So who else is there? He said, oh, no, no, th- you're it. So what do you mean? A symposium is more than one person. I was the symposium. So today I am the lecture, and this is um, I'm pleased to be here. I particularly appreciate as well the, the history of Prairie, a witness to Jesus in this place since 1922, and not just equipping people internally, but sending them out. We were talking at dinner tonight about Ellie Maxwell. Seven kids, all of whom had some kind of international experience. That's exciting. That as we as we look outside and realize that our faith drives us to go to different places. Um, I love the mission as well of, of, of Prairie, where you talk about establish God's kingdom by equipping and mentoring individuals through biblically integrated education for life and careers that will meet the greatest needs of the world for the glory of God. So tonight, I hope in a humble way, we'll, we'll talk about one of those things that I would say is one of the greatest needs of the world, and that is people who are on the margins. And what does it mean? The big idea that I'd like to explore today is that following Jesus takes us to the margins. So let's, let's talk about this idea of margins. The world has margins. Do you know what I mean when I talk about that? A really good illustration that I came across a little while ago is from the movie The Lion King okay? You're wondering where am I going with this. It's all right. So The line came. it came out in 1994, about five years before my kids were born, but it became one of those staples that were on our DVD player kind of constantly. In fact, this summer when the live uh, version came out, my wife and I decided to go back and revisit that that period of our lives. So, without kids, just the two of us, two adults, went to the drive-in and watched The Lion King movie again. It was a kind of a throwback. But the reason I bring this is because there is a scene in The Lion King, it's like this, where Mufasa, who is the Lion King, has his first lesson for his king, his son Simba, little Simba, who is his heir apparent. And they they had this moment This is the first opportunity for them to to learn what it means to be a king. Now, let me just let me you may not perhaps can you know remember this scene, but I'll tell you what happens. I'll try to get put on my best James Earl Jones voice for Mufasa. But so so Mufasa says and he brings up to the edge of Pride Rock and says, One day, Simba, my the sun will set on my time here, and you will rise as the new king. And Simba says, looks out in awe and says, and all this will be mine. And Mufasa replies, everything the light touches. Everything the light touches, Simba says. But then he looks to the edge of his lands and says, what about that shadowy place over there? And Mufasa says very sternly to little Simba, not the shadowy places. Those are outside of our kingdom and you must never go there. Now, of course, the story is that Simba does go there. That makes the whole plot. But the fact is that I think probably all of us have received some kind of Mufasa-like warning in our lives from a parent or from another authority figure about keeping us away from those shadowy places. Margins in our world are shadowy places. For me, growing up in Moncton, New Brunswick, I had about a two-kilometer walk to school. I tell my kids it was uphill both ways, but in any event... That was two kilometers if I went on the road. If I decided, however, to cross the street and go into the Wilderness Park across from my house, I could save time. The problem was it went through a dark forest, walked through an abandoned day camp, very creepy, lots of wildlife, and sometimes actually people living in poverty. i kind of take my life in my hands walking through there. And my parents said, don't go there. That was my margins at the time. But you know, my parents, I think, were motivated by trying to be safe because often margins, if you think of your place margins, it's often full of people. It may be a poor place or a place where people are different. And rather than going to some of those places to make a difference, we're said, don't go there. It's our, it's our nature, stay safe. Because we, like Simba, wanted to avoid the shadowy places. Margins are shadowy places, they are messy places. It's often full of dangerous environments, difficult problems, and desperate people. Well, at World Vision, it's kind of built into our DNA to go to the margins of the world. Uh, We have been doing a lot of work in in contexts where people are struggling with poverty and injustice. And we've been doing that for many years. And of course, the developing world, it's not just one size fits all. There are lots of places that are a bit more stable than others. And in recent years, we have been reinvigorated by going back to some of the heart of our mission to go to what we would say are the marginalized places. Now, I'd like to just take a few minutes and just share a little bit about what what those margins look like in our world today, what fragile contexts are, which was the the language that we use, fragile places, places that are often a bit in between what we think of as a humanitarian emergency requiring relief and long-term humanitarian development work that's done in more stable contexts. Um, and just, I want to share a little bit of some statistics to start, to give you an idea. So when you think about this, humanitarian crises today are longer than they ever have been before. Protracted, long situations. Think of the Syria conflict. Refugee crises that don't go away. It's not like a, a typhoon hits, you, re- you, you come and do relief, recover, and move on. Ninety percent of humanitarian crises today are lasting longer than three years, and the average duration is seven years. There are more people on the move and displaced today since Second World War, and some say even more than that. What's particularly troubling for me is that more than half of the people who are fleeing from their homes today are children. And many of these kids are unaccompanied and in dire need of protection from violence and exploitation. We know that maternal deaths, maternal mortality, is two and a half times higher in conflict-affected or fragile contexts than the rest of the world. I joined World Vision in 1990, and as a globe, we've made real progress in fighting extreme poverty. But extreme poverty today is on the run. It's going to find dark, dangerous places to hide. In fact, by 2030, 80% of the world's extreme poor will be in a handful of fragile or conflict-affected countries. So, what do we do in an organization like World Vision? Well, we have to try to figure out new ways of working, new ways of funding, and of course, new ways of telling stories to for our job, my job, to invite Canadians to partner with us so that we can make a difference in these contexts. Well, I could talk to you a little bit more about this, but we've our team has actually put together a video that's kind of an explainer on fragile context that I'd like to share you share with you. This is, right here in Three Hills, Alberta, the world premiere of this video. <laughs> it was just finished this past week, so you can give us your feedback and your five-star reviews. But this is a serious topic for us. I don't mean to make light of it at all. So I'd like to take you with me into some of the fragile context, and you'll see me uh, in some of these places. Hopefully, you'll have a better sense of what this means for us. Take a look. Poverty is on the run. It's going to hide in some of the world's most dangerous places, known as fragile contexts. Experts predict that more than 80% of the world's poorest will be living in these dangerous places by 2030. This includes places like Afghanistan, Iraq, Democratic Republic of Congo, and Central African Republic. Chronic instability in these places means children are extremely vulnerable to food insecurity, violence, and exploitation. I'd like to know from the women here, how many of them were married younger than the legal age of 16? It's not hopeless though. How will a community change group change the issue of early marriage?
3: At the beginning, when we started the session, the women didn't have any voice But after two or three sessions, they became more empowered. If you're going to study seminars, <laughs> you're going to be better at the end of the session. You're going to get married, you're going to get married, and you're going to get married, and you're going to
2: World Vision has learned that the best way to address the needs is through these three components. One, give people the life-saving essentials they need to survive. Two, rebuild and identify risks for the future as a way to recover. And three, increase the resilience of children and communities to build a better future. We are supporting all three areas all at the same time. We are turning each of these different elements up or down depending on what's happening in a specific context. Our dedicated local staff are constantly assessing and then delivering what children and communities need to thrive. survive. Within crises, World Vision helps people meet their immediate survival needs. This includes giving people access to food, water and shelter, as well as the protection and information they need to be safe. I am here today in the Central African Republic. This is the community of Powah. I am surrounded by thousands of people here who are gathered for a food distribution. The reason these people are gathered is that armed groups have ravaged the countryside. There's an ongoing civil conflict here, and so World Vision is working with partners to help meet the needs of families here.
4: It can be very frustrating uh, because we have the beneficiaries who continue to suffer and rely on us To bring hope to their homes. Mm.
2: Why do you keep doing this?
4: I guess if we stop doing it, uh, I think if we stop bringing the little we can, these people are just going to suffer further or even die.
2: What's a message I should give back to Canadians about the situation here? Recover. As emergency relief is being provided, communities need help establishing stability and adapting to their situation. This includes identifying risks, implementing early warning systems, and beginning to rebuild both infrastructure and relationships.
4: من We have mental health and
1: we are also the specialists that are working with the children they have experience we are providing a safe space for them. We have centers in both sides of Mosul so they can feel safe when they are talking to our staff and our specialists.
4: I love these cultural areas. All the designs are nice, but I love the painting and the art. I'm going to go, I'm going to go. I'm going to perform. I'm about
2: the Build a better future. World Vision also works on fragility, which means we target the root causes of poverty and insecurity. Our local staff educate, empower, and invest in initiatives to help people thrive. We support local faith leaders and institutions to promote positive social norms and behaviors. we also address the national and global drivers that keep children and communities vulnerable. In Afghanistan, one of the ways we do this is by offering programming that empowers women. Are you the primary carer for the bees? Yes. How does that feel to be in charge of something like that and to provide so much for your family?
3: We are here in Kabul. We are in the village. We are here in the village. The problem is that we are here. are in the village.
5: The idea of uh, having this women market came uh, after we did an assessment. Most of the women are not able to sell their products to the markets. So there was a middleman between women's and the markets.
2: What does it mean for you as a woman to be here selling to other women?
3: In addition
2: to fragile countries like Afghanistan, World Vision is also working in fragile pockets in countries like Honduras. Here there are certain areas where children and families are displaced and exposed to high levels of crime and violence.
3: Que son más de mil familias y realmente ese sueño se ve truncado porque tienen que vivir abajo de en zonas condiciones muy muy difíciles, asinhamientos,
5: la educación del padre. Entonces es difícil
3: aplicar para un puesto en una empresa. No obtienen un salario para competitivo para que ellos, sus hijos puedan aplicar a una mejor educación.
2: But we are able to identify the needs within these pockets and respond accordingly. In this case, with vocational training.
3: Estoy en segundo bachillerato y estoy estudiando informática. En un banco, en un super donde maneje las computadoras porque a mí me gusta mucho sobre hacer programas. A veces. No sé si me dan ganas de llorar, no sé, pero a la misma vez me acuerdo que si nos esforzamos hasta donde vamos a tener una gran recompensa.
2: World Vision is uniquely positioned for this work. We have been working in the countries where it is most dangerous to be a child for decades. And now we are increasing our efforts there as part of a new global strategy. As a Christian organization, we believe God is present with the brokenhearted. We feel a new call to be more effective in the world's darkest places and do our part to help every child reach their God-given potential. We hope you'll join us in standing with children and families living in these dangerous places. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it gives you a little bit of a glimpse of the work that we're doing. and I should just say that this is a video that's going, we use this for government and others. So uh, what, what I'd like to switch gears to now is to explain a little bit more what it means, not just the what we do, but why we do it. And it comes right back to the words that our founder, Bob Pierce, wrote in the flyleaf of his Bible. And he, it's, it's almost become a, a mission statement that kind of sits alongside our other ones. And he said this, he wrote, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. Let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. It's hard to go and look at places that actually break God's heart. Uh, I just came back last week from Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, Eastern DRC is uh, a place of, of deep crisis, deep conflict. It is the place in the world where there is more incidences of sexual violence, things like rape as a weapon of war, than anywhere else in the world. Add on top of that, there's an Ebola outbreak going on right now. These are tough places. You sit down with family, families, mothers, children, and it's hard not to have your heart broken, and we know that God's heart breaks too. And this is where I'd like to, to switch gears a little bit and talk about Jesus in the margins, because this is really why we do this. Uh, I'm going to ask you to, I'm gonna, we're going to take a look at a short text from the Gospel of John. You may have your Bible with you. I thought maybe everyone at Prairie Bible Institute would have a Bible. Just kidding. I'm going I'm to let you see it up and on the screen in just a minute, but it's a, a little bit from John 4. We're just going to take a short section. Just, you're probably familiar with the story of Jesus engaging with the Samaritan woman at the well. It's a wonderful story of hope and faith, and it certainly deserves a full treatment, which I'm not going to give it tonight. We are just going to look at the beginning and pull out some ideas about this big idea about what it looks like for Jesus to go to the margins. So in the story, just the background, uh, Jesus is in uh, Judea, which is in the south of the country. And it kind of becomes this rumor mill. People start talking about the fact that that he's getting more disciples than John the Baptist. And so he decides that, I think he wants to leave all that behind, and he's going to go to Galilee. And so this is where we pick up the story, and we just read it on the screen here. Now he, this is Jesus, had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sichar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Now, we're going to come back to this in a couple of minutes, but it's not only the story that we look at here, but I think it's also what does the, the gospel writer, what is John actually putting into the story that gives context and additional meaning? I think it's fascinating. So soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. This particular version, uh, sometimes it's actually a little bit more emphatic. It's kind of, give me a drink. That's what Jesus says, actually. Uh, He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me? For a drink, even in Jesus' words, their world there were margins. We want to explore this. We need to ask ourselves by by what the gospel writer tells us what Jesus is doing, how he interacts. What can we learn about what it means for us to follow Jesus? So the information, of course, in these few verses are profound when you think about the first century Jewish backdrop. Uh, the first thing to remember is that Jews and Samaritans were not friends. We know this. Uh, in fact, they were definitely going to consider themselves enemies. Now, it's interesting because anyone else in that world looking at the Jews and Samaritans, they would have a hard time telling them apart. Same cultural background and so on, but it's amazing how the smallest things can separate us. Unfortunately, that goes on in the world today, right? They disagreed about holy, what holy book to go, where the temple should, should, should look like, such that they were definitely marginalized for each other's. From each other, And in fact, a good Jew did everything that he or she could to stay away from a Samaritan and certainly to stay away from Samaria. So if you just think about this, I mean, this is why actually the, the, the story of the good Samaritan is so powerful, because all of the roles are reversed, right? This idea of there's some margin in that one too. So in John 4, then, we have to understand this story in light of its context. The first thing I want you to look at here is the fact that it says at the beginning that uh, he had Jesus had to go through Samaria on the way. It's the first thing to consider. because the language in the original text is actually quite strong. Often this word is translated, it was necessary, the word day, Greek word. So why did Jesus have to go? Well, I think it's important to, to, to remember the, the, the kind of the place around this. It's arguable that he didn't have to go at all to get to where he needed to go. So Judea Judea was down here in the south. Uh, Let's see, the way you're looking at me here, this is the Mediterranean Sea over on this side. He wanted to go up to Galilee. The problem is that Samaria is right in the middle. So the shortcut, and some some Jews did take the shortcut, was straight through Samaria. I can tell you that they did. They didn't stop for a drink along the way. Most Jews actually would go around, cross the Jordan River, up through the desert or maybe skirt the coast around the other side. They did everything that they could. So what is this all about, this idea that Jesus had to go through Samaria? Most Jews didn't. Um, it's interesting, the, the, if, in fact, I was hoping that there may be a few students here today because I thought they may not understand this, so I, I was gonna suggest that if Jesus had a smartphone in AD 33, he would probably turn on these settings Avoid highways, avoid tolls, avoid Samaria. Anyway, I think you all get what I mean. But the United Bible Society handbook actually talks about this. And they suggest that the the language here is actually a divine necessity. That there was something about the fact that Jesus had to be there at that time in this place. This marginalized place. There's also in John's gospel a really interesting theology about Jesus being the imitator of his father. Uh, in John 5.17, Jesus is accused of working on the Sabbath. He defends himself by saying, well, my father's always at work in this way, uh, and I too am working. He's the obedient one. He does, imitates what the father does. He obeys his father's commands. In every way, he's in step with God. So much for, so that he tells his, his disciples That he, you know, those who see me see my father. So we also know then that Jesus also understands and sees his father's heart. And his father's heart, God's heart, is for the presence of those in the margin. You don't have to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament before you stumble on verses that talk about the value of people who are marginalized. The fatherless, the orphans, the widows. Uh, places in in Deuteronomy and other places. God defends the cause of these folks. So if Jesus follows God there in imitation of God, then he's sharing that same heart. So he's going, it's divine necessities that he's there. He's following God's care for for these. And then this is the other interesting thing I find that's just fascinating from this, this section. And that is, you may remember that that. I, I pointed out that John talks, uh, set, talks about the fact that Jesus goes to Sychar in Samaria, but he makes this, the point to say, oh, and by the way, this is near the place where these other events of the Bible happened, right? Jacob's well was there. This is where uh, uh, Joseph, uh, Jacob gave to, land to Joseph. Everybody that he was writing to knew where Sychar was. They knew where Samaria was. So why did he particularly make this point? He was basically trying to bring these connections between the Jews and their marginalized people. And in fact, that word near, nearby, is the same language, the same, the same uh, version um, in Greek that literally means the nearby, uh, sorry, the nearby one. So like, the idea of neighbor actually is the same word. That's what I'm trying to say. The word neighbor in the Bible actually means the nearby ones. It's the same thing. You just add a the to the same language as near. So there's this idea that Jesus, John is giving us this message that Jesus is telling us that the people in the margins are our neighbors. It's the same language that we see later on when he talks about God, says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love the nearby ones as yourself. And he's making this point, these points of deep connection. So margins are nearby and we find our neighbors there. The question is, do we see what he sees? But then it's fascinating because Jesus then, in the interaction with the Samaritan woman, takes even a step further. Even being there, he's in the margins. And then he reaches out to a woman who is, frankly, in the margins beyond the margins. So we know a few things. Jesus is there by himself with this woman who is there in the heat of the day. Now, I have tell you, I have spent lots of time in the developing world around wells. And it tends to be social time for women gathering around wells. There's singing, there's dancing, there's socializing, it's a key moment. It's often done early in the morning or in the evening when it's cool. So the fact that this woman was there by herself, the fact that she was there in the heat of the day, something is signaling to us, there's a telltale sign that she has been marginalized even within her marginalized community. What are the telltale signs of people who are marginalized in our world today? You get this sense that her community has put her into this shadowy place. So she's a Samaritan, she's a woman, she's an ostracized woman, and yet Jesus reaches out and builds a relationship with her. And in fact, he takes that extra step of asking the unthinkable, give me a drink of water. Not just please give me a drink of water. Give me a drink of water. I think it almost sounds rude. But I think it was actually because Jesus was breaking down and c- breaking through, almost to say, did you hear what I had to say? I'm talking to you. In a really significant moment of, of connection. Shocking to even her. How can you even ask me that, he says, she says. Then, of course, John 4 goes on to tell a remarkable story about the effect of this interaction, the transformation that happens, that this woman and, and Jesus' uh, ministry there a, it begins this path of a whole community who are beginning to explore what it means to follow Jesus. World Vision, of course, in our marginalized context, that's exactly what we hope. Even in places where we are the only Christian presence. Uh, places like Afghanistan, where you saw me sitting there. The fact that we are a Christian organization prompts conversations, prompts questions. And I love that the, the gathering I had with that group of, of Muslim imams as we were finding common cause around single things. The fact that we were faith-based, we can talk about that, and we, people ask. We are looking for transformation to happen that's offered through Jesus. But we're going to leave the rest of the story for another time. You, people here can look at it in the New Testament survey course or whatever. Because we've got a lot to learn, I think, from just this profound introduction. We know that God is already there in the margins, and Jesus follows him that the Son of God in his perfect imitation went to the margins, and that the people of the margins, the nearby ones, are our neighbors. So we get a picture of Christ and, and Christ's kingdom, and what do we see? What does it mean to live in God's kingdom, God's economy? I think we see this. First of all, God's gospel is all about margins. We're all broken and ostracized from God, right? Um, how does Romans 5.8 eight says that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Very soon, it's not that far away, believe it or not, is Christmas, the biggest celebration of God coming, joining us in the margins. A remarkable example in the incarnation. We also know that God's kingdom is all about the margins. There's so many stories by Jesus about Jesus, his interactions with others. It was about showing what God's way is all about. And in God's world, we find ourselves actually taken out of the center and moved into the margins of the unknown. Jesus says, go out to the highways and the byways. Minister to the least of these, the hungry, the prisoner, the thirsty, people needing shelter. And as a result, the lepers touched, the adulterers forgiven, children are welcomed. God is the God of the margins. His love reaches out to the edges, to the fringes. So I think you see where I'm going with this and why we do what we do at World Vision is we seek to follow Jesus. Because if we follow Jesus, just like him, it is necessary for us, I believe, to go to the margins. If we want to be Christ-like, Christ-minded, Christ-led, that's our trajectory. Love can send us no other direction. And we know from the story as well that other people are with Jesus in the margins. The disciples, I think, spent half the time wondering what the heck Jesus was saying. But nevertheless, they were there with him in some of the tough places. They followed him because they saw in him the person they wanted to see. They saw Jesus, they saw God in, in, in the flesh. My pastor talks about Jesus as God with skin on. And they followed him, trusting him to go there. I believe that's the same challenge that we're, we are asked. And later on, we know that they're astonished even by the way Jesus has over the social conventions of the time. It says when they came back from from getting food, they they were amazed that he was talking to this. It violated almost all of their understanding about the margins and about their people. But Jesus showed a different way. So there are so many ways we can think about this. And the question is for us at World Vision, we've wrestled, and I think the challenge for all of us as Christ followers is to say... Will we make our way there as we follow Jesus? What does it mean for us, you, together and in individually to follow Jesus? I and mean, this is huge. Remember what I was talked about about Mufasa earlier t- today. You know, that's beyond our borders and you must never go there. That's that lion king. But I believe in, a, in, in Jesus called the Lion of Judah, who says bigger things. He says, I will build my church to be the light on a hill to do the good works of mercy, justice, and love, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. To do he, to to be care for the imprisoned, the vulnerable, the weak, children, families, and communities. One of my very favorite passages of scripture is from Isaiah 65, where he says, Behold, I'm creating a new heaven and a new earth. This is a new kingdom. And the whole world is, is flipped on its head. Right relationships with each other, with creation, And of course, most importantly, with God. And I want to follow that king. I believe that God is calling us all to. And the fact is that we can find people on the margins everywhere. Right here in Three Hills. Perhaps even in this school. We don't have to go to Central African Republic or Afghanistan to see this work. Or DRC. But at World Vision, we feel that we have been given a particular calling. A slice of this kingdom mission. To go to some of these the world's toughest places, and that's something that we happily accept. We seek people who want to come alongside and support us. To these, to us, these places, however remote, however shadowy, however dangerous, they're all nearby. In the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about those he describes as the least of these. Who are the least of these in the world today? Well, margins are, are in one sense, everywhere. But the least of these are places like Afghanistan, I would say. And this is Banesh. I met her earlier this year. Banesh is 14 years old. Looks younger, actually. I met her at a mobile health clinic, where World Vision was working with some displaced people who had been fleeing from conflict and a drought That's all all Afghanistan needed, frankly, as as a drought. They were leaving their villages behind and had all come into this small town. And we met her in one of the displaced people's camps. But here's the thing, this beautiful young girl was there because she was pregnant with her second child. Her first medical care ever was for her second baby. She was married at the age of 11 in an economic transaction. And in moments like this, despite all of our advocacy, as economic pressures go on, families respond. They essentially sold Banesh. She didn't know what was going on. I think of her at 14. I think of my daughter at 11, going to school, dancing, dreaming of what's what's there, watching the Lion King, while Banesh was being forced to grow up way too soon with a future that is, frankly, pretty bleak. We could make sure that her baby grows up as strong and healthy as we can in this particular context. But we have to redouble our efforts to say, what can we do to stand up for the least of these to prevent future Baneshas from being in this same kind of position? In Afghanistan, we know that 6.3 million people today are in need of humanitarian assistance. There's 1.6 million people, children acutely malnourished. Almost a million people on the move. And... Intensifying conflict, like ebbs and flows, is forcing us to move even further. It's hard to hear stories like this. It's hard not to be overwhelmed, actually. In fact, sometimes, you know, if I'm talking about margins with, with, with people, they'll start to panic and almost like, what can I possibly do? This is not my role. There's so many ways that we can just change our mindset to be in this place. One of the interesting things in that story as well, you know, they talk about disciples going out to get food at the market. Have you ever wondered where the money came from for them to buy food? They weren't necessarily begging along the way. It's because back in Jerusalem, there were a number of faithful disciples, actually many women that were named, high-ranking women, who social convention. I'm sure they would have liked to have been with Jesus in in the backwoods of Samaria. But instead, we're there and sending funds to provide support. And that's often a way that we can also figure out ways. There there are different ways that we can act to support organizations or others who are going to the margins, whether it's local or international. Um, I think we've got, I think I have time. I have one more short little video from my time in the Central African Republic. Um, This is probably one of the darkest places that I've ever been to in the world. Uh, an incredibly challenging context. Almost 20% of the people living in car are uh, internally displaced. But I'd like you just to come with me to this one country. It's about six minutes long, and I'll say a few words at the end just to close. But look for this, look for this idea, this rhythm of margins. What does it mean to be on the edge? What does it mean to come together? And how can we look for light in the darkness? Take a look. (laughs)
5: Central African Republic. This is a country that barely makes the news. A country many people don't even know exists. It's here that fighting between Christian and Muslim armed groups, the Selika and Anti Balaka, plunged the country into chaos years ago. But things have gotten worse. In 2018, the Central African Republic was rated one of the saddest countries on earth. What's happening today isn't just because of Muslim and Christian tensions. These armed groups also clash over the control of resources like diamonds and gold. They take territory by violently attacking villages, killing hundreds of people, burning farms, and recruiting children to join their forces. Now controlling more than two-thirds of the country, these groups threaten to drag Central African Republic into full-blown war. Those who fled the conflict total 1.1 million, with more than half of those flooding into the few areas UN peacekeepers have managed to secure. There, they're waiting camps, praying for the day that they can return home.
2: Most of the villages were destroyed and burned, is that right?
5: Yeah. Ah.
2: La Maison des jeunes.
6: The scale of the need is significant and our ability to meet it is so insignificant. The disparity uh, is something that I haven't seen anywhere else.
2: I don't think we need indexes to tell us that the situation in car is awful. Any minute, it could go worse, and in fact, all the signs point to even escalating challenges, escalating difficulties for the population here. I'm asking her what does she need to finish her... Plastic sheets. Plastic sheets. Okay. Where do they get the water? So
4: they
5: go to the river Uh, keep keep water there. beaucoup. Singila. Singila. The government said they did not want an IDP site. So all the people here, most of them, have been living with the host communities. As of end of February, the number of displaced is 76,000, which means the town is swelling. We have got already close to 100,000 people in this town, a town that was meant for only 40,000 people. With no infrastructure? With no infrastructure. We've tried, but the number keeps increasing. And we cannot cope up with the increasing number. WFP has got a shortfall of 57 million. But normally it's supposed to give a ration for even uh, three months or one month. But because of lack of financing, that is why WFP is giving this quarter ration for 15 days. So there is no food. It can
4: be very frustrating because we have the beneficiaries. To continue to suffer and rely on us to bring hope to their homes. Why do you keep doing this? Uh, I guess if we stop doing it, uh, I think if we stop bringing the little we can, uh, these people are just going to suffer further or even die.
6: My name is Michael. Be Michael well. Antoinette. Antoinette, my name is Antoinette.
2: Antoinette, what's a message I should give back to Canadians about the situation
1: here?
3: Merci. Pas une seule personne, nous sommes tous ensemble. L'autre c'est problème, le ce majeur, c'est la cohésion communautaire.
6: Il à famille. Nous avons Bon, a de temps. Nous avons
3: we have a responsibility as an international
6: community, as people, as people of faith, uh, to respond. Um, and we're not, we don't have the means uh, to meet the needs here. And so, to come to bear witness to the suffering that's here, um, yeah, we have a responsibility to tell the story, but also to do something.
5: The crisis in CAR is overwhelming, but it's not like other emergencies. This is a long standing, forgotten crisis. For any stability to occur, long term programs tackling the root causes of conflict are required. World Vision has brought together Christian and Muslim faith leaders who are working to break down religious divisions created by armed groups.
2: This is a fragile
6: pair. We are fighting with the people of the world. We are fighting with the people of the world. We are fighting with the
1: people of the world.
5: There
2: are so many factions, so many armed groups, so many people in conflict with each other. I think there needs to be a commitment by the population, uh, starting at the grassroots, looking at faith leaders, community groups organizations like ours, local organizations, to try to build peace. It has to come both from the bottom up and from the top down.
5: Even in the midst of chaos, there are pockets of change. In remote villages, child soldiers have been freed from armed groups. Through peace clubs, these youth learn how to promote peace in their communities. Together with World Vision, religious leaders are creating farming groups that work across the lines of faith to promote acceptance between Muslims and Christians. Peace is literally being grown from the ground up.
2: Are they among the groups that have come from elsewhere, that are are displaced, or are are, are they
3: here? There is no
6: problem
2: among
3: them.
6: So, they share their daily life.
2: They're Mm -hmm. suffering everything together. Do you hope that the example that you have here will be something that other people see.
3: Tell them, tell them this
2: is the context that we need to be expanding in. We have the expertise, we just need the resources to be able to bring it to life
6: you know
3: the stories of teenagers
6: who become associated with armed forces it, and have the strength to remove themselves, to to find peace in their heart. We need to do something to support them.
2: It's not just about shutting down armed groups and making sure that people aren't shooting at each other. It's also about relationships between each other that are mutually supportive, that help uh, help each other grow and develop.
6: We do have the tools. We know how um, to support places like this. Uh, if we can get the resources and the in, the interest and the investment, um, and people to actually care um, about places um, beyond their backyard.
5: not only the good, but there's the good that is there, there's this fear of God and the fear of God that's there. The Central African Republic might rank bottom of the happiness index, but seeds of hope can be seen. The work is not easy and results can sometimes be unclear, but World Vision is in it for the long haul and is committed to seeing those seeds of hope develop. Only with that hope is peace a possibility, and only then can light begin to break through the darkness.
2: I just want to I'd like to close just to remind you just one more time a few things about margins they're messy and risky they make us feel uncomfortable what I've learned is that Jesus doesn't seem to hesitate to make us feel a bit uncomfortable from time to time the mission of the church I believe includes people in the margins here and around the world margins are closer than we think people on the margins are our neighbors Jesus is already there God is already at work and here's the challenge for us. If we want to follow Jesus, we need to go to those shadowy places, go to the margins. So what do we do with this? I wouldn't want to presume to give students uh, or you know, anyone here at a college more homework, but I think it's about being mindful of this. What, ask ourselves, what does this mean? Learn more about what's going on in the margins of the world. Ask God to give us eyes to see the margins and marginalize right in our own community, in our families, in our churches, in our schools. And then pray how we can continue together to reach to those in the margins. You saw a glimpse in the car video of this procession. I was in the Central African Republic on Palm Sunday. It was remarkable. It was near the end of my time. I have to say that I have never felt a darker place in my life than the Central African Republic. Until this moment. Now, in my church growing up, on Palm Sunday, we'd have a palm frond and we kind of wave it around. Here we gather great big palm branches and we did a circle of the town. It was like a three-kilometer walk. 700 people from the local Catholic church surrounding the town saying Hosanna, declaring in that moment that light is breaking through the darkness, that Jesus is come. What are we going to be, what are we going to be able to do? How can we expand and grow that light? That's what we're trying to wrestle through at World Vision. It's not easy to do. Uh, we're, as I mentioned before, there are new ways of working, new ways of thinking, new ways of praying and engaging with communities like this. But I hope that through this little glimpse of the work that we're doing here today, that perhaps you felt challenged. Maybe you know a little bit more about margins in the world and ways that Christians, faithful Christians are trying to do our best to respond, to be Jesus' hands and feet, to follow Jesus into these tough places. Thanks very much for letting me be with you tonight.
0: Don't go away. I used it more time than I thought, I'm sorry. That is, that is all right. Thank you for uh, um, uh, an insightful, uh, educational, and, and really moving presentation. Um, really uh, personally, and I think all of us here in the room have been touched by, uh, the images, the testimony, and just the awareness of, of the great need that World Vision and partner organizations like yours are are dealing with, and and to commend you for that and to thank you for coming and sharing a little bit of your heart and your organization's heart for that. Even though we have a small, a very uh, small audience here, I know we're filming this and we're going to get it up on the website so that we... You know, your talk here is gonna find a wider audience than initially is here. But we do have a few uh, moments for, for questions. Um, Any one in the audience? I mean, we, we've got uh, a small group here, so your question can, can get to the front of the queue very easily if you'd like. Yeah, Margie.
3: I just wanted to ask about that beautiful young woman who is 14 here. So I know that with World Vision, um, part of the ministry is supporting a child in an organization and I'm sure there's a multi- uh, multitude of ways. But what happens to a young woman like her? Is there a specific program by which one would hear someone like that and then support someone I mean because what's her life going forward in this 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 catastrophic type of community going on around her with with fighting of people and it's doesn't look like to be any peace for you know for whenever and so I thought what happens to a young woman like that and what is the future for her and are there specific ways to help that uh, that kind of young womanhood that been married young have babies their future is is not a lot
2: mm-hmm. well i think that's that's the challenge of a context like this you know if i was able to see a, a, a little girl like like banesh and i can't think of her other than a little girl even though she's a mother of two now you know, in a place, if we were in Tanzania or Kenya or something, we could connect her into one of our child sponsorship programs and we could care for her and her children on an ongoing basis. In a context like Afghanistan, the engagement that we've had with her so far is really just through her coming into this mobile health clinic. Now, I hope our team is very connected in the ground. There's still IDPs, internally displaced people in that context. I suspect that there'll be some kind of ongoing connection. We have been able to provide her with some health care, some maternal... her first. Maternal health care, and also talking to her and her husband uh, about things like family planning um, and birth spacing. What does that mean to be healthy and to wait and to ensure that other children are? That was the first time they've had those kind of conversations. There's very little that I can do to change the course of Banesha's life. She's very unlikely to go back to school, she's very unlikely to have a, a future beyond kind of a, you know, a, Caring for her children and best she can, and hopefully letting them grow up strong and setting an example. It's interesting. We talked to Banesh, and she said what she wanted to give the message to her daughters: say, "Don't do what I did. I don't want you know. Don't. I'm going to do all I can to prevent this." And what I'm, I'm I'm taking away from from that conversation, it was also hopeful because we could then go and sit with the community care groups where we were talking with mothers and girls who were being empowered to stand up against things like child marriage. And so we are making a difference. We can't do much for Banesh to change her, her course of her life, but we can for other girls in Afghanistan. And what I'm really happy to say is that we are making a difference for other girls. Uh, there was a glimpse in the video earlier on about a, a girl that actually, based on what she learned at World Vision and her mother's engagement, said to her father when he said, I found you a husband, we're going to sell you, said no. And actually was able to make an economic argument, say, I'm actually worth way more to you if I have a university degree uh, and provide for you that way than the short-term gain I would get now. And she convinced her her father of that. So we can just hope that those sort of things take hold and we can begin to change the life of not just her Banesh, but for other girls in that particular context. It's a long-term process, I'm afraid.
0: Another question.
6: Um, I'm curious about the criteria that you have for these like fragile countries because you would need these three. So was there a specific like criteria that they matched that fit this?
2: Yeah. So the, the, the term fragile context is one that's kind of used in, the, in, in our international development sector. And World Vision has identified 10 countries that are particularly fragile and they would measure them against social fragility. So, um, What's the, what's the level of social cohesion? Is there inter, inter, is the level of conflict? The ability of the government to meet basic needs. There's a sort of set of criteria that they would go through and there's a, there are indices that are developed in part from our team and part using international resources. And we've identified 10 countries that we want to expand our presence in. It doesn't mean by the way that we're going to leave other places that we're working behind but expand in those areas. And second layer then is for us even to look within our current programs, our long-term programs like in Honduras, which generally speaking, uh, with the exception of some ongoing real terrible violence in, in, in parts of that country, is, you know, relatively it's a middle-income country, but there are some pockets that are deeply fragile, where you'd see all the same kind of markings of that. So we see the same in places like El Salvador, uh, Kenya, uh, some of these other places. So there's another whole set then of what we call fragile contexts. So we we're trying to adjust our work to reach into these fragile countries, and fragile contexts, and what we're finding is that the same kind of approaches work in both of those places, both kinds of places. Mark, would you mind
0: telling us about what's going on in Syria? Mark requested that we get a report from World Vision's work in Syria.
2: Our work in Syria itself is—we um, are kind of in working on some relief the biggest response that we are doing in Syria is actually to the refugees and displaced people in the countries around Syria, in Lebanon, in Jordan, in Iraq, because there are so many Syrian refugees that have crossed the border and are likely to be there for a long time. And it really depends on the context. So I've been to the Azraq refugee camp in Jordan, where it's a traditional kind of camp experience, if you will. Camp experience. Sounds like a summer camp or something. It's not. desert with tents and all of the refugees are in kind of an enclosed area that's actually fenced off and disconnected from from the rest of the world. World Vision is there, we help put in latrines, we're doing some school feeding, working with other agencies in that kind of context. Other places in Jordan or Lebanon, refugees are actually living in communities, kind of integrated with the local population, requiring us actually to do a response not just to meet the needs of refugees, but also local populations. Because the refugees have come and have put a whole lot of stress on schools and other infrastructure, so we have to have a different kind of approach in that context. But we have a really significant response in in those countries that are are surrounding Syria. Obviously, with the view that they want to go home when the conflict stops, um, it seems pretty unlikely at the moment that that'll happen anytime soon.
0: I have a question for you, Michael. I'll get to you. Can I just jump in and then I'll get to you, Andy? Um, In places like the Central African Republic, where you're using the term fragile states, some people might even call them failed states, at least at a political level, and you're in zones that are still war-torn, are your teams at risk, or is there a sense that even in the midst of these warring factions that you have a kind of credibility there that allows you a certain kind of access and freedom from uh, a, a kind of exemption from being taken in by the wider um, fighting factions?
2: The answer is yes to both of those things. First of all, our team is at huge risk all of the time. In fact, the places that I was, all of these places that we're talking in, we have to have a special training, it's called hostile environment awareness training, uh, this, before you're even allowed to go in there. Yeah. Uh, in fact, my wife always says, uh, she says, where are you going on your trip this time around? And, and usually the best thing is if I go into my closet and I pull out my quick run bag, which is what we have to travel with the whole time in case you're under attack and you have to grab something and run, that's when she begins to really worry. Um, but the people who are our staff who are in these contexts are my heroes. They are deeply committed to being in, in these tough places. But the fact is that, yes, we have been able to establish in most places um, uh, because we try to be independent, we try to be neutral, and have developed deep relationships, uh, we are relatively safe. So an example is in the the western part of Afghanistan where I was, World Vision was one of the only agencies that is able... We're we're acting with the World Food Program. We're Mm -hmm. their biggest deliverer in that part of the world. Um, We're the only ones that are able to go up into the into the remote villages, because that's all a Taliban area. But they, but we can also go through the government areas, because they know that we're, that we're neutral. Mm. Now, I didn't go into the Taliban area, and yeah. it was too much of a risk for me, but our Afghan staff were, were able to do that. And I think that's a testament to the fact that they have been able to navigate, often in very difficult circumstances, mm. that kind of uh, trust. Yeah. it's interesting, too, as a Christian organization, even in a tough place like... Afghanistan or Central African Republic the fact that we are Christian the fact that we have a faith-based converse allows us to have conversations around values and connection with faith leaders who are often the people who say yes or no who gets to come into the community um, that actually is an entree to a conversation that other secular organizations uh, aren't always able to have.
0: That's interesting because that really runs counter to the, the secular narrative of the history of Christian mission and Christian philanthropy, especially in areas of the Global South. And so it's actually, it's not seen as a sort of a, a neo-colonialist way, but actually has credibility, which is very encouraging.
2: It is encouraging. We still, we have to obviously repent of the neo-colonial yeah. moments in our past as Christians, but there there are some amazing opportunities that you wouldn't expect uh, to, to be a witness in that That's in a different encouraging. Kind of way.
4: Yeah. I don't have a question. It's more of an observation. I spent a lot of time in Pakistan and I've been around a lot of marginalized people. I've never I've, I've met a lot of men who have illiterate children but I never met a a lot of literate men who had illiterate children but I never met a literate mother who had illiterate children. So to see your Focusing on women's stuff is a way to give hope for the next generation.
2: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, even at World Vision, where we have a child fo- children's child focus, I've been talking about our teams as we want to be gender responsive, gender transformative kind of jargon words to realize that girls and boys in these contexts are different. We'll often use the word now girls and boys rather than just children because the needs and impact we need to have on girls in a place like, places like mm-hmm. there, if we don't emphasize and look what the implications would be, then we're going to miss out if we just think it's a one-size-fits-all response. Mm-hmm. So the focus on girls, the focus on women is absolutely critical for us. We know that if you build into a girl, you build into the future of the country. That's, uh, it, it's, it's amazing to me. I couldn't agree with you more.
0: Time for a question or two more. Well, I've got another one for you. I just I noticed on on one of the clips, um, I I think it was just it was showing the 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 border of one of your T-shirts there, which I think was one of the six kilometer mm-hmm. run uh, uh, six kilometer runs for Wellwater. Yes. And the uh, the last two years now on Canada Day weekend, uh, the Three Hills Ministerial has sponsored a community service and then a run. For World Vision in that regard. Where is that program? Has, has it been targeted to a specific region? Is it one of these areas that we saw or is it all over? I'm just curious.
2: Uh, the Global 6K, which is our our, our, our run, I think we had 45,000 people run worldwide. Last I've got year.
0: two of those t-shirts in my, oh, in my wardrobe and that's I plan to add a third. That's great.
2: I, think, <laughs> I think the reason I was, I was looking at that and I was thinking, why was I wearing that t-shirt? I think we were doing some kind of you know, promo yeah. video while we were there in Central African Republic. Because the fact is that we take those funds and we put them toward our clean water efforts wherever the need is. Yeah. Okay. So there's not a specific country that's okay. targeted, mm-hmm. it really goes toward that sector. So we, we bring the funds together and say, you know, wherever we can, we can unlock uh, mm-hmm. funding to, to bring clean water. Right. And that Central African Republic was a critical place for us to, to be doing that. Mm-hmm. Same thing in the internally displaced camp in Afghanistan. Would have been one of the other recipients, I believe, this year yeah. because we were involved in, in working with potable waters, water in the in the IDP camp.
0: That's neat. Yeah. That's it, it, I think it gives further uh, encouragement for our community effort to really continue to make that part of uh, absolutely something that we can do. And it's what what I found that's really neat. There is that. Yes, you're a Christian organization, but the appeal, the humanitarian appeal of a project like this allows us to, to work with the town council, with the town school, in a, in a sort of a broad effort that, that reaches people just beyond the ministerial. And uh, I, I commend you and your organization for, for finding ways that, that allow us to build bigger coalitions like that of support.
2: Well, we really want to bring the common, you know, find common cause and expand, mm-hmm. bring people in. Uh, we are absolutely unapologetic for who we are, why we do what we do, what we believe. Uh, what we mm-hmm. found is that when we step back and say, listen, we're we're offering this assistance to people in need without any strings attached. Uh, come and join us. People respond. Yeah. And if they ask good questions about why we do what we do, I'm ready for the answer, I can tell you.
0: <laughs> yeah. And you, I, I didn't read that part of your uh, your bio. You're, so, you're a marathon runner, right?
2: Yeah, well, yes, I am. Um, uh, so the global six K is just the yeah. start of our Team World Vision works. We also have a whole endurance program. So I've run Whoa. the New York, Chicago, and and Calgary marathons, actually for Team World Vision. Proud um, to say, I think I've raised sixty five thousand dollars for myself for
0: clean water causes. Wow. So, yeah. It's great inspiration to the rest of us. Yeah, I'm feeling very <laughs> out of shape at the moment,
2: though. Don't ask me to go for a run tomorrow.
0: But uh, yeah. Well, you just have to just get, a, get your hoodie spread out, and the wind will do the rest of That's it. That's a so. true
2: mark if you're yeah, really yeah. a Christian,
0: if you want to do this
2: work. Run a marathon yeah. with me. There is a half-page, a, a half-marathon tomorrow Red Deer. Okay. Just, just in, in case. It. So which way is Red Deer? Okay, I'm going to go this It was way. into <laughs> the wind, actually. The wind is blowing me away the other direction.
3: Does um,
6: World Vision, um, when you come in, is there a way that you work with um, like other organizations, to, like churches, just to establish churches and work with people? I know you you don't want you want to be broad, but like in a in a place like CAR, um, this is a Catholic church. Are there any were there any um, Christian churches in the area?
2: Absolutely. So, in that in that group of interfaith conversations that we were having, there was an evangelical pastor, the Roman Catholic uh, Church. We we partner with churches where we can. They're one of our indispensable partners, actually, uh, in in parts of our work. It's actually built into our mission statement that the church is our is our is our partner. It looks different, of course. You won't find many churches in Afghanistan, um, but in Central African Republic, actually, even where religious conflict is key. Um, even secular organizations are having conversations with the church, but they can only go so, so far. Um, so we, that's, that's critical for us. Partnering and collaborating in, in this kind of work that we do, we can't do this on our own. We always believe whether it's with Christian or secular organizations, we have to coordinate, we can be better when we work when we work together.
0: Final question for anyone? Yeah, John.
4: In uh, CAR, you uh, <clears throat> showed us the continuing conflict that goes on, mm-hmm. and some of it is religious. Is it also tribal conflict that keeps, uh, keeps it going, and what is it that drives them? What, what is it that uh, motivates them to continue the conflict?
2: That's an excellent question. First of all, it is kind of on the surface a religious conflict. The br- groups tend to be kind of Muslim or Christian. What we discover when you look beyond that, there are actually 14 separate armed groups in Central African Republic. And there's overlay of culture and ethnicity and some religion, some are others. Some people, the, the central government only controls 30% of the entire country. They didn't even in- include the whole capital, Uh were there, armed groups are there, and they have this whole pattern of these small groups coming in and deciding that they just want to carve this one little piece of the, of the country. What's, what's perplexing to me is this is not, in, in Central African Republic, and you see the same in the DRC where I was a couple of weeks ago, I don't get it, to be honest, because the groups don't, they really aren't interested in taking over the country. They're just kind of carving out their little fiefdoms. It's about power. It's about being in charge. There are some local resources at play. Both both of these countries are are resource-rich. I don't understand the reason for some of the conflict. I think in some ways it's kind of just built in. That's why when we do our work there, we often will start with the children trying to change the cultural patterns that are in place. Because otherwise we get what I, I would say is just senseless violence. I've actually, in my own mind, I'm, I know there are experts that could probably give much better ideas about this, but uh, I, I can't see a reason for what anyone is gaining from this kind of violence. And it's just unbelievable atrocity. In the Central African Republic, So you saw some of those child soldiers that were there. Many of them beca- became affect, uh, affiliated with armed groups because their families had been killed in front of them, and they kind mm-hmm. of acted in revenge. And the story is these armed groups would come in. They would go to a village right before harvest time, burn all the fields, burn down the houses, kill the adults, throw them in a well, so that they, they you know the, even the water supply in the in the in the community is now contaminated, and people have to flee. And they know that they can't go back. And the whole harvest cycle has has happened. You know that if you can't get there and plant your seeds, you're going to have another whole year of of food insecurity, of kids without parents who have been uh, connected with armed groups. It just becomes this cycle. So the idea is, how can we break it? How can we stop that kind of ongoing cycle of violence? And I would say in places like Central African Republic, Afghanistan, DRC, South Sudan, I have to admit, sometimes it feels like it takes two steps forward, one step Mm -hmm. back. But at World Vision, we really feel called to be there, to remain, to be witnesses, and to be faithful, even though it's tough. And we're always in inviting people to join us and saying, listen, this is not going to be a typical story where you can say, here's the before picture and here's the after picture. It's not a linear process. It's about staying there and trying to build and work on these deep-rooted issues. It's not going to be uh, go away anytime soon, I'm afraid.
0: Well, we are grateful for World Vision and your partners who are willing to do that. And even if the success stories aren't that tangible, there's a sense of being faithful to God's call. So thank you for sharing with us this evening, Michael. Really, really appreciate it. I'm going to call Mark up to present a token of our appreciation and to close our time in prayer this evening as well. Thank you.
4: Michael, I, I uh, you know I love you. I love your work. I think the world of the fact that you're on the very front edge dealing with these greatest needs of the world. I just have so much respect for that. And we, we think we're preparing people to come help you. As But that puts us in a safer place. We're grateful for what you're doing. We thank you. We are kindred folk with you in that great global kingdom building work. I'm gonna drop this if I'm not careful. Yeah. How about you take the box? We have oh, wow. this globe. Beautiful crystal globe that we like to give to friends who are kindred to us. If you look through it, you'll see our logo on the bottom. It's down there. And we like to think it shines through the globe all over the place. Fantastic. So um, we give this to you to take and remember that we're partners. We'll be praying for you and we appreciate you.
2: I love that. Thank you very much, Mark. Yeah. Thanks very much for inviting me and letting delight. me be here tonight. It's a delight. Thank you.
4: Our Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the work that you're doing through uh, Prairie, but especially we thank you for the work that you're doing through World Vision. We pray that you would bless Michael, give him a, a special anointing of your Holy Spirit. Give them open doors, give them favor among governments, give them resources for the work that they need to do because they are caring for widows and orphans. Bless them, we pray, so that they can be a blessing. And we pray that we will all be good at building your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Thank you all for coming and thank you, Michael.